Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create life by design. I am your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today we got a Q&A. Got a lot of good questions today uh, coming from different different places like Facebook, Instagram, and the link in the description for the long yeah. So as always, you guys can head over to any of those places. We have the Facebook group, which is in the description of this podcast. Uh, but the two primary places to ask us for questions are going to be the actual Q&A form, which can be found in the description of this podcast, as well as the link in our Instagram bio, uh, both the team page and my page. Um, and you can uh, send us an email, send us a DM, whatever you want. But we pull from everywhere. So if you have questions, send them in and we will get them on the podcast. Um no major announcements today. We're going to keep that part short and dive right in. Um, the only things I'm going to briefly mention is that we've been dropping some really good blogs on the, the website. So head over to taylorcoachingmethod.com slash blog because we have been putting out um, a lot more content there and it's really, really in-depth. Um, and I just finished the navigation of the blog. So there's like a different section of like the guides, uh, the free guides that aren't the downloadable ones, but like the blogs that are just so in-depth that they're considered guides, as well as the uh, recent updates and all that kind of stuff. So the recent articles. Uh, so go there. You'll you'll find a lot of really good content in that section. Um, and uh, just a little teaser, because we are getting closer and closer. Uh, and it's two big projects I've been working on that um, I'm just anxious to get out, but I've just been unable to share much about the actual uh, or like show any of the stuff that we've been doing. But um, I've had a few finalized uh, meetings with suppliers. So we are in production for some of the, um, I mean, there's just so many testing of materials, the logo, the everything. Finalizing. Yeah. So we finalized all of that shit. So uh, we're in production. So very, very soon, probably within the next month, uh, we're planning a launch in October regardless, but um, uh, for the apparel, so Taylor Left Apparel. So we will be uh, probably recording some content on that specifically and sharing the Instagram page once that goes live and everything like that, uh, as well as the website, of course. And then um, the Taylor Trainer app, we are getting closer and closer every single week. Um, and that one is uh, getting intense because there's just so much involved. Um, and I'm excited. I mean, you guys are going to be blown away with how much uh, detail and just how cool the software is. I, I mean, it's just really, really dope. So that will be launching Black Friday. Um, so be on the lookout for those. I'm just just giving you guys a teaser to remind you that things are going to be coming soon. And I'm very excited about them. But let's get into some questions. Awesome. We got one coming from Stephanie Giarge. It says, Thought, what are your thoughts on eating for your somatype? Somatotype. Somatotype. Does, it, does the macro split even matter? So this is a... Uh, Somatotype, for those listening who don't know, it's not talked about a lot anymore because it's just not really that applicable. So does it matter? I don't really think so very much. There's a couple of cases where you could make an argument for it, and I'll explain those, but it can also be explained for, through other things. It's not accurate. So somatotypes are classifications of body types. Um, there are three different ones. There is a uh, endomorph, mesomorph, and ectomorph. An endomorph is somebody who is stout 
I mean, technically, they're just – when you look at the pictures, it's somebody who's overweight. They're not generally tall either. They're just average height and overweight or short and overweight. Uh, there is a mesomorph, which is just the average human being. This is where, like, typical, like, average body weight, lean individuals, athletic individuals all fall into that mesomorph category. And then there's ectomorphs who are just tall and skinny. Um, really what we have here is we have short slash average height people and tall people. And if you are overweight – you're uh, and not super tall. You're immediately put in that endomorph category. <laughs> it's not really so. Yeah, like in when, between when they 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 used to teach this, and they would say there's certain diets and certain training programs for each somatotype, uh, but it's not the case because technically, if you would have looked at me growing up, you would have said I was the endomorph, not above average height at all. I'm not super short, but I'm definitely not tall, and I was overweight. So you would look at me and go, Ah, you're an endomorph. You need a specific diet for endomorph. Nope, I just needed a calorie deficit. I needed to lose weight. People look at me now and they would say, you're a mesomorph. You have an average height with an athletic build. But if the somatotypes were real, then that doesn't explain me being able to shift over, you know? Um, if it was something like bone structure, maybe I could get behind that but because bone structure doesn't change, but these don't even, like really there would just be, it depends on the bone. Like, I mean, there's like over 10 different types of hip structures. Um, and then it's really just like, are you super tall or not? You know? Um, but the, the reality is, is if somebody is a endomorph who is, uh, average or short, but also overweight though, the, the principles and the diet and the macros and all those things that would need to be applied to that individual to lose weight, to no longer be an endomorph would be the exact same strategies and principles I would implement for somebody who is, um, the same height as an ectomorph. So let's say they're super tall, they're six, five plus, but they're super overweight. Yeah. I would still apply the same thing because what we have here is somebody who has excess body fat and they're going to have the same exact health concerns as the person who is short with excess body fat. And if there's any diet manipulation to try to help those individuals, I would say it would probably come up as, uh, and I wouldn't always agree with this, but this is what people would think of is, uh, it would come up as uh, insulin resistance. So they are overweight and it's causing a metabolic disorder. And because of that, they are insulin resistance. Uh, they would need to improve their insulin sensitivity. Most people would say implement a low-carb diet or a keto diet to Im improve their insulin sensitivity. That would help them lose weight. But the reality is there's been plenty of research to show insulin sensitivity doesn't equal fat loss, just like insulin, um, excess insulin or, or insulin production doesn't lead to um, fat gain per se, right? It, it's basically are you overeating and therefore storing body fat or not? And if you are... We've done this with clients at Taylor Coaching Method, and there's plenty of research to prove this, and I have articles on the website that talk about this. We've had overweight people who we implement a high-carb diet with. They're in a deficit, and because they are training and they are in a deficit, their insulin sensitivity improves while they have the presence of carbohydrates, which kind of defeats the whole, like, you have to go low-carb to improve insulin sensitivity so that you can lose weight, right? It's just not the case because we've seen insulin sensitivity improve and insulin resistance go away on a high-carb diet because strength training and building muscle and being active and getting your heart rate up a certain way, that improves insulin sensitivity. And then a calorie deficit improves in insulin, uh, improves your insulin sensitivity. Um, it's also why it's hard for people that are really into fasting because they're like, well, fasting improves insulin sensitivity. It uh, increases uh, uh, autophagy, which is like cell turnover to help longevity. But there's also research to support that uh, a calorie deficit does both those things too. So is it the period of fasting or is it the fact that you're in a calorie deficit, right? 
as of now, we would probably say it's a calorie deficit because more studies provide that's true. And there's enough studies that show these improvements with uh, intermittent fasting, but all of them that prove it with intermittent fasting, those people were also in a deficit. Yeah. So they can't really make the argument because they didn't do the research to show otherwise. I don't know if the word is easier, but would you say it's easier to do it on a low-carb diet or a lower? Uh, than easier than fasting? Or on a high-carb e- diet. Are you training. saying is it's easier to fast while doing high-carb or low-carb? To, to, to uh, fix that insulin sensitivity. Um, I would probably say... I mean, it's I mean, kinda, it's possible, but yeah. is it easier to do on a low carb? You can make that argument for sure. I think it's pick your poison, you know? So for example, uh, somebody who is overweight and needs to, and, and I would say in more cases than not, yes, it is easier on a low carb diet because I think most people who actually suffer with a metabolic disorder or insulin resistance and go to the doctor and they say, you have this issue, they are overweight and they are not strength training. Totally. So in order for me to be like, hey, track your macros to make sure you're in a deficit and start strength training, like let's build two habits, one of which requires you to learn about macros and and dial in tracking everything, it would be difficult on a sedentary person who has never done either, right? Whereas I could also just say, hey, stop eating bread, stop eating potatoes, stop eating rice, stop eating goats, yeah, exactly. Stop eating all these carbs, sugar. They're going to go into a deficit because that's half their diet. They're going to remove all that stuff, and they're not going to understand what to replace it with in the source of fats or protein yet. So, and this is why also sometimes people, they go on a low-carb diet when they're not tracking anything. They do lose weight, and gurus and some of these authors that are promoting fasting and all these things, they will actually say it's because of the low carbs. No, it's because they went into a deficit by accident. And if you ask them later on, so many of these people plateau and stop losing weight later on or gain it back because- in that journey of doing low carb, they do learn about food, right? And eventually they learn that they just need to keep carbs out, quote unquote. So they start adding in avocado and oils and bacon and keto style foods or more meat or whatever it may be, right? And they're adding in fats because fats are healthy, carbs are bad, insulin. And uh, then they take themselves out of that deficit, gain the way back, mm. right? So it's like at first, yes. So, but it's, again, it just depends, right? But the point is it's not because of insulin. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, um, I don't even remember what your question was. Damn. (laughs) Just the, does the macro split matter during the Somatotype. We got into the low carb thing. I'm like, (laughs) I go into like a black hole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the, uh, they don't really matter. They don't really matter. No. Um, I think you explained that. No. Yeah. You can shift between those. And like the only person that doesn't really change would be an ectomorph kind of, but like, for example, like if I showed somebody a picture of LeBron, I mean, I don't think they would call him an ectomorph because he's not like this tall scrawny dude, Kevin Durant. They would be like, yeah, yeah. He's a, can you believe I'm using these? Yeah. (laughs) Um, he, he he is an ectomorph because he is tall and skinny, but like how tall is LeBron? Do you know? I don't probably six seven. That's fucking huge. Yeah, but he's not like the tallest guy in the NBA. No, it's just those guys are aliens, yeah. right? And and so when you look at LeBron, he's got the height of an ectomorph, but he's jacked. Yeah. So he's not really an ectomorph, right? Six, nine. That's crazy. Yeah. And he's not the tallest. Like that's nuts. Even Wiz Khalifa. Wiz Khalifa definitely was an ectomorph, but now he's kind of jacked. Yep. Now he's, he's jacked as LeBron. He's j- oh yeah. We're not comparing that, but I'm just saying he's. He's not skinny. No. No. That's what I'm saying. So, like, you can change that. It's really just, like, 
I think what's more accurate is uh, like the metabolic phenotypes that we've talked about yeah. on the podcast where we have some people that have highly adaptive, some people who don't. Wiz, uh, LeBron at one point, Kevin Durant, um, people who, especially if they're not active, they have highly adaptive metabolisms. Like I'm sure Wiz didn't follow a diet to be that skinny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Kevin Durant didn't either, but they were probably highly active. And I'm sure even with Wiz, when he ate more calories, he probably moved more on stage or whatever it may be. People just burn more of what they eat. And then there's other people who eat and their body doesn't really burn more. They still just kind of sit around. Totally. Right. So I, I don't think there's, I, I think the somatotypes are kind of bullshit. Gotcha. Cool. All right. We will move on to the next question. It is from Lucia Tabicio. It says, is fasting for 18 hours a day healthy for you at 45 years old? Um, can be kind of going back to what I briefly mentioned on the last question. Uh, it can be absolutely. Uh, because there are times where a calorie deficit is actually healthy. I actually had somebody ask me that on my Q and a on my Instagram and I didn't get a chance to answer it because there was just too many, but the, they asked, uh, do you need to come out of maintenance for health purposes? And that's, you know, usually people don't ask that. Usually people are just asking, do you need to be in a deficit all the time? But the reality is there's actually more research proving that calorie deficits can promote longevity than there is maintenance calories do. You know what I mean? Because maintenance isn't really doing anything. Like if you go into a surplus, there's evidence to show that it supports stress, it supports recovery, it supports um, joint inflammation, it supports muscle growth. But if you stay in a surplus all the time, you're just going to get fat. You know what I mean? So and if you're in a deficit all the time, it's going to eventually cause stress. So I think there is reasons to shift between all three of them. Um, but point being for this question specifically, uh, there's definitely reason to believe that intermittent fasting whether you do it for 12, 14, 16, or 18 hours a day, or you do it for a whole day straight. There is reason that that would be good for you because it would create a calorie deficit, and that would create a, autophagy, which is shown to improve longevity. Yep. Um, I would also add that most of the time, and this is more of like correlation, not causation, so you don't need to do intermittent fasting to do this, but I would venture out to say that if you did a research study or a meta-analysis on the diets of anybody who intermittent fast, I can almost guarantee there's less processed junk food. So I would say it would also give you the opportunity to probably eat healthier because if you're, only, if, if you're fast for 18 hours a day, you have one meal a day, maybe two. I can almost guarantee you're not eating. Uh, actually, you know what? It could actually promote the opposite because people could fast all day and then go to the drive-thru yeah. and eat shit. But I was going to say most people who would be interested in improving their health and longevity at 45 years old through fasting probably are also eating really healthy. So what is it, the fasting or Satiety is it the healthy food? food? Yeah, and it, they want to get more high-quality foods, like vitamins, minerals, all that kind of stuff. Um, they're health-conscious, so they're probably going to make better choices. Is it that or is it the fasting? Probably that. But is the fasting causing them to do more of that? Maybe. So it's, you know. Probably. I don't know if that's the chicken before the egg or not, but. Um, which is, have you ever sat and thought about that? Like really thought about fasting that? Fasting for 18 hours? No, the chicken before the egg. Oh, No. So do you think it's healthy? Who do you think came first? Oh, my God. <laughs> Definitely the egg. I mean, anyway. I, mean, I guess, but how the fuck did the egg get here? <laughs> um, but I am not high, guys. I'm just forgetting what we're talking about and want to talk about eggs. Um, I, I don't think there's enough evidence. It's so hard because there is evidence to support this question, to support health-promotive benefits of fasting especially when it comes to aging, anti-aging and longevity. There is. There's just also a lot of questions being thrown at all those studies because calories weren't controlled. 
Because at the end of the day, if we take two groups and we put one on a fasting group and one not, it's almost guaranteed that if we don't intentionally make sure their calories are equated, the group that's fasting is going to be in a bigger deficit. So they're going to lose more weight. They're going to see more autophagy. They're going to see more of these health-promoting benefits, especially because most people who do uh, are, are in the research as participants aren't jacked athletes, right? They've done fasting and keto and things like that on athletes specifically, and it doesn't lead to better health, doesn't lead to better performance, and it doesn't lead to more muscle. So it's people dependent too. But I would also say that I think if you fast for 18 hours a day year round, I don't know if that would be healthy. I think at some point your body probably wouldn't want you to do that. In fact, there's actually research to show the type of fasting is important too. So if you're talking about the classic fasting where you wake up, you don't eat, until 18 hours is up. And so you have one meal, let's say it's at 6 p.m. and then you go to bed. That's a typical intermittent fasting protocol for 18 hours. There's research on chrononutrition that shows it's actually better for you if you eat your biggest meal in the morning. So instead of waking up and fasting, you would wake up, eat a big meal, and then fast earlier. So like you would wake up, eat a big meal, eat a moderate-sized lunch, a small dinner, and then you stop eating at 6 p.m. so that when you wake up and eat again by 9, you've successfully fasted for, what would that be, 12, 15 hours. So let's say you eat at 10, that would be 16 hours. should be better. But um, there's more research to support that. Yeah. So stopping, because if you eat, if you stop eating sooner, you go to bed with better sleep, your hormones are in a better spot, your circadian rhythm improves, you have more calories in the morning, which means you burn more calories throughout the day through NEAT. So there's reasons for that, but um, he didn't specify on that, obviously. So it's hard to say. Um, it, it's honestly hard to say. I, th- I definitely think um, I would venture out to say that at some point in my life, I will implement some form of intermittent fasting for the purposes of um, health and longevity. Absolutely. Will it be me eating my calories at night or in the morning? Probably at night from, because from a social perspective, it's better, even though from the morning would be easier. But I know for me, if I wake up and fast, I'm more productive than if I wake up, you know what I mean? If I flipped it around, um, but I wouldn't do it year round and I would no longer have goals of uh, body composition change as in like fat loss or muscle growth. Exactly. Um, And I would just caution people too, if you have uh, any type of imbalances or dysfunctional levels of testosterone, thyroid, cortisol, any hormones, sex hormone, hunger hormone, um, stress hormone specifically, um, intermittent fasting is probably not going to be great for you. Your hormones run off of a feeding clock. So if you take away that feeding clock, they're not going to improve. So I think intermittent fasting is reserved for the person who has low stress, has a healthy lifestyle, isn't looking to build muscles, just focused on longevity, and doesn't have any pre-existing issues that are there. There you go. So Totally. Okay, cool. We will move on to the next one. We have one coming from Kim Schubeck. It says, uh, there's a lot of detail here. So it says, how do I know... If the weight I am gaining is fat or muscle, I just started your bodybuilding workout for women. I'm two weeks in and I have been training consistently for well over 10 years, but this program is nothing like what I've done before and I'm absolutely loving it. I'm eating 1,830 calories. I've gained four pounds in the past month, but also starting bio-identical HRT as, as, as far as a month ago. My measurements are all the same except my for my waist, which is up. I ha- am open to the idea of building muscle and gaining weight, but I just want to make sure it's the right weight, at least uh, most of it. Would love to and appreciate your thoughts on this. So definitely listen to the How to Lean Bulk podcast or read the article 
um, both of which just went out as you're listening to this a few days ago, probably. Um, go check those out because I kind of talk about the rate of gain, what's acceptable, what's not, how you're going about it. Um, number two, uh, pump that you're liking it, pump that you've been training for 10 fucking years and you're doing a program in my app that is unlike anything you've done, you're loving it. Like that's, there's that's a, if there's cool. a testimony of any kind, that's it. You know yeah. what I mean? A lot of experience and they still love it. So um, you're probably doing, there's a few different programs in there for the people listening that are specific to what she's talking about, female muscle growth and body composition change. Um, she could be doing uh, female physique, which is probably what I would guess. Um, but there's also uh, the female version of bulletproof bodybuilding as well as the female version of power builder. So we have a lot of options in there for anybody who wants to change their body composition or they have more power building functional hypertrophy style goals where they want to look better, but also be stronger and feel better too, right? So um, a lot of good programs in there. Um, you guys can check those out at taylor-trainer.com or taylorcoachmethod.com slash taylor-trainer, all of which is in the description. So go check those out. Uh, the new app isn't live, but the current app is what she's talking about, and it's still better than 99% of shit you will find out there. I can guarantee totally. it. And the 1% is the beta version of my new app. <laughs> um, hint, hint. Yeah. So... Uh, the, the question specifically, though, um, there's a few things here. Like, number one, if you just started, you kind of, you got to understand, like, when people go into a gaining phase and they see rapid improvements, it's usually because of, of a few things being combined at once. Um, and typically what we'll see is somebody goes into a, a phase like this, and if they are increasing their calories and they shock the system, so to speak, quote, unquote, with doing a program that is at her words, unlike anything she's done before in the last 10 years, and she loves it, so she's motivated to push it. I mean, that's a combo that's, you know, you're eating more and you're you're really pushing it hard in the gym, doing something novel, which is a new stimulus. New stimulus is going to, it will shock new growth. Um, but a new stimulus doesn't count if it's new for four weeks, right? Like, I'm seeing some crazy gains right now because I haven't done this specific program in well over five years, probably more, the old vigor. So, I mean, almost 10 years, yep. literally. So doing this exact style of program where I'm doing omni contractions, which we've talked about on the podcast a bit lately, it's so different to me that it is going to shock the system, right? But if I had done that like six months ago, probably wouldn't really make a difference. It would have shocked you then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but not now, right? Yeah. If you only have a small period of time. So you're going to see some gains because of that. Now, the other thing is you mentioned the HRT. So bioidentical HRT for those listening is hormone replacement therapy. It depends on a few things. If Because hormone replacement therapy, especially when women are talking about it, it could mean multiple things. There are different types of hormones. Um, some women do need to um, get replacement therapy uh, for testosterone because they have, uh, even though women are supposed to have uh, low testosterone levels compared to men, they still have and need testosterone. So even like if you look at the prescription dose of a male versus a female, I've had clients, women clients that are on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, they would call it HRT as well. Yep. It's like the smallest little bit they need compared to the, uh, a guy who needs way more because he's trying to fill a bigger tank that is depleted, right? Um, but there's also women who need help with progesterone or estrogen or thyroid or anything, you know? So there's so many different things. It kind of depends on that. Um, if what I'm saying is depending on what hormone, quote unquote, HRT is, will depend on how much muscle growth you're actually going to see from it. Um, most of the time you see an initial spike in muscle growth, regardless of the hormone, it just the level at, at how much growth is 
dependent on the hormone itself. But if you remove or not even remove, if you have a depleted hormone, your body, your endocrine system is running without like if you have a big machine, you got all these cylinders pumping and one cylinder is just not firing, the whole machine's going to slow down, right? You kick that cylinder back up. Now everything's running a lot faster. So you're going to be able to recover faster depending on the hormone, especially testosterone. Testosterone literally spikes muscle protein synthesis and helps with that facilitation. So you will build more muscle from it, but it's not going to be anything crazy. It'll be, it'll be what was already genetically naturally possible. It's just that you weren't in an optimal position to reach your natural genetic limit, right? Uh, and I, and I only say this stuff because like, I know a lot of people who are on HRT and I think it's great, but I know a fair amount of people who are on steroids too or have done steroids. Steroids are a different ballgame. Yeah. You're taking five different things, three of which I can pronounce, the other ones I don't know, and, and it's a concoction of stuff that creates super physiological growth. Like You're growing on another level. Um, but the fact that you implemented that and you have this new program that you haven't done in a while, both of which are going to contribute to better gains, for sure. Um, how much growth should you experience or gain? She said she gained four pounds in a month. If you continue to grow at a rate of one pound per week, I would say you're gaining too fast. Um, I have seen... continue. Yes. I have seen this many times, even with myself, where the first month, huge spike, and then it lowers, right? And then it's like something more gradual. So I would say a more gradual rate of gain is probably, for somebody your experience level, even though you are starting a new program like this, that new program is going to create that initial shock in four pound increase. And then after that, you're gonna, it's going to taper down. One pound a month is very solid, like really solid for, um, I would even say, and I'm saying that because you're doing something so different. Um, but most people, like for example, for me, what I would hope for is like half a pound a month. Like I don't, anything more than that, I don't think is. That's pretty solid also. It is. Yeah. Six months in, you gain three pounds of muscle. Really solid. But like up to a pound is something that you could expect. And still, I should, caution this and still say lean yeah you could push that and you could gain two pounds a month put on some fat and there's nothing wrong with that either problem is is eventually you're gonna have to drop so like let's say you put two pounds of muscle on per month because you're going faster and you you technically gain three to four pounds per month because some of it's fat well in six months when you're done your gaining phase six to twelve months you're gonna have to cut a lot of fat and then you're probably gonna lose a little bit of that muscle even if it's just glycogen or it's actual tissue now if you if you look at how much would you have gained on both sides? Maybe you would have gained a pound or two more at the end of it by going the faster route. Maybe not. It kind of depends what's worth it to you in the, the meantime. And I feel better when I'm leaner, so I would rather go that route. But um, if four pounds a month continues, I'd probably say you're going a little too fast. I wouldn't be worried about the measurement going up around your waist. I know she mentioned that. Um, you would be able to visually tell, but like I see that pretty often, especially at the beginning because you have more food volume. So like, let's say we're eating more calories. Well, you eat more calories, you're gonna have more carbs in the muscle. So you're gonna gain water weight. So some of that's obvious, but your, your muscle is water. So if your muscles get bigger because carbs are storing there and water's pulling in, that's a good thing because you're literally growing your muscle itself. And then as that water and hydration stays in the muscle, it's gonna help the muscle actually create new fibers. And then the literal tissue grows. Mm. But- Food pulls water wherever it goes. Sodium pulls water wherever it goes. And your body pulls water uh, when it needs when it needs uh, function, I guess you could say. Because even if, like, let's say you get an injury on your wrist, inflammation goes there. Fluid, right? If you are, uh, if your adrenaline goes up, you'll notice um, you're not hungry, typically. 
uh, and you will get more, uh, if you're lean enough, you'll get more vascular in your arms, right? So if I'm doing a leg day, why is my arms veiny? Well, it's because my adrenaline's up, my body is sending fluid, sodium, carbs, fuel, everything, blood flow to the limbs because when cortisol's up, adrenaline's up, I am to run and fight technically from a survival perspective, right? When I eat, I don't have a pump. It's sending blood flow and fluid to the gut totally. because that's where I'm working is the intestines and the digestive tract. So I say that because when we eat more calories, even if it's not fat, you're going to bring more water and blood flow and fluid. And there's literally more food in your stomach all in your gut. So if you're a little bit extended there and your measurements go up to there, it's totally normal. It's not something to worry about. But again, if that just keeps going up, 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 up. Yeah, of course. It's that first month. Yeah. First month, you're going to see a little bit of that. Uh, first month, you'll see that whoosh effect. If it continues, slow down. Um, I've seen it continue for two months. Is about the longest I've ever seen it continue. And I've seen it continue for over a month and going into two months. And about a month and a half, two months in, I'm like, oh, shit, we got to slow this down. And I've also seen it with like, holy shit, they're still gaining. Because it was working so well that they literally were just gaining solid weight for two months straight. Damn. And then it slowed down. You know, I can think of somebody right now um, – Shout out to Chris. He's probably listening to the podcast. And he, uh, same thing, he gained rapidly for the first three months. And now it's tapered off and we're slowly gaining. But you can see it visually still. It's just slower, right? And this is where we actually just implemented a specialization phase because we are like, all right, well, now we've gotten all these like early gains in that were pretty rapid. Now we can start specializing your training. We're doing like a chest focus block. And it's wild how much bigger his chest has got in just a month of doing that. His weight hasn't spiked up like crazy like it was before. But, like, it's undeniable when you see the picture. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So that's when you start, like, kind of tweaking things like that, which that's is awesome. a different question. But, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Good. We will move on to the next one. It's from Wezo Aubrey. It says, I swim four days per week for 40 minutes and do an upper-lower split. With the primary goal of muscle growth, is this optimal? Uh, <clears throat> if you eat enough. It can be. I mean, I, my, my guess is that they're asking if they're doing too much swimming to build muscle. Um, Swim four, four days per week for 40 minutes each yeah. and do an upper-lower split with yeah. the primary goal of muscle. Um, assuming you're doing an upper-lower split that's four days a week as well, because a lot of people, there's people who don't. They'll do two days a week or three days a week, and it's upper-lower, upper-lower, upper-lower. Like, it carries over longer than a week. Yeah. Um. Here, uh, like, I'm going to keep this really simple because there's just not much depth or context to the question. Um, it can be done 100%. You need to eat a lot of food. Basically, if you are swimming because you love swimming, just make sure that you are f- replenishing those calories that you burn with it. If you are swimming because that's what you use for fat loss, stop doing it or do way less of it. You know, do a session once a week because that'll give you conditioning and you need conditioning to stay healthy and athletic. Um, but general rule of thumb is pretty simple. If you're really trying to build muscle, you shouldn't be burning more calories than you are consuming, period. So if you are want to continue that, you need to make sure that you're eating enough food to support muscle growth while still doing that. And it's going to be a lot harder to be in a surplus, even if it's a small surplus to lean gain. Um, it's going to be very difficult to accomplish that if you are doing a t- if you're burning a lot of calories through swimming, which four days a week, 40 minutes is a good amount of swimming. That's a full body cardio. Um, second rule of thumb, uh, really simple as well. Two thirds to three fourths. I like the three fourths rule. So 75% of your training volume should be geared towards your main goal. Right now you're 50, 50. 
you spend just as much time swimming as you do lifting. Let's say your lifting sessions are an hour. Maybe you spend a little bit more. But if we're keeping this simple from a, you know, how many days of this versus that, you know, it's the same thing with like when people are like, um, well, I really want to build muscle, but I'm doing CrossFit three days a week, bodybuilding two days a week. I'm like, well, you got to flip that. Plain and simple. Like majority of your volume has to go towards the specific goal. If your goal is to get better at CrossFit, I would say the same thing. Do way more CrossFit. Just do a little bit of accessory or strength or hypertrophy work. Um, but you got to pick one. You got to pick one, you know? So um, even, again, my program right now, probably more than 75% of it is geared towards strength. That's the goal right now. Get strong as fuck. to hypertrophy. Yeah. Because uh, I haven't done a strength-specific block. So I was really it started as I need to do this because I haven't done it in a long time. And then I'll get back to hypertrophy. But now I'm loving it so much. It's like, well, let's see how long we stay here. But nonetheless... I do curls one day a week and it's just one actually it's one set of barbell curls not one set I think it's five sets we go back and forth and I don't do any tricep extensions I mean when was the last time you see me do one exercise for my arms yeah all week usually I'm like trying to squeeze them in on every day I can because I love training arms but hypertrophy is usually my goal so you you have to stay true to that rule otherwise you're going to be a jack of all trades master of none totally Cool. Let's move on. We have one coming from Darren Jones. It says, what is more important, form or progressive overload for hypertrophy? That's a tough one for you. I don't know what it is. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> the uh, um, Forget what he said. What's more important, oh, form yeah, yeah, or form. progressive overload? Um, so... That's tough. Uh, this is something where, you know, and, and we were talking about this before, so I'm just going to throw it out there. If you are interested in this, shoot me an email. Um, it's I technically haven't opened it to the public as you're listening to this, but going to be very soon. Um, I don't know what to call it outside the absolute most tailored program, coaching program that you could possibly do. I mean, from training to nutrition to communication to uh, the periodization, like you have to take a fucking personality test for me to do this like it's literally to the 10th degree um and we've been working on it for a while like it's something i'm really really excited about um but i haven't felt like i was ready to market it yet however if you are interested in something like that it is a more advanced style of coaching program and relationship with me uh shoot me an email i'd love to talk to you about it um but this is where um well what's your email cody at coachingmethod.com thank you um this is where it gets a little bit tough, to be honest with you, because uh, if we look at research, progressive overload, without a doubt. If we look at research volume, without a doubt, and volume using progressive overload to accomplish volume is specifically the most important thing. Like if you just looked at research, if you asked a researcher and you were like, what is the most important thing for muscle growth and hypertrophy? They would say using any form of progressive overload to accomplish more volume over time while still recovering so you have to periodize it, is the best way to build muscle. And that means adding weight. That means adding reps. That means adding sets. Progressive overload is literally just progressively doing more, whether it's weight, reps, set, it doesn't matter. Like, and even volume. Volume equated, it doesn't matter how many sets you do. It matters how much total work you have done. And that means reps times sets times weight. So what's the total tonnage? <laughs> However, um, the problem with a lot of research so, for example, we have research on volume. It says that shows us more volume is better, right? And they will take a group of people and they have low volume, moderate volume, high volume. 
and they have to do this. There's nothing wrong with the research. It's just how it is. You got to do leg press, bench press, lat pull down. Three big compound movements that are going to hit three big target muscle groups, chest, quads, uh, lats, right? They take people through it and they get the results. More volume equals better. The problem is, is that if I take somebody, for example, who has a short torso and long femurs and short tibia, which sounds like a very like specific person, but there's a lot of fucking people like that. Um, for example, I have a short torso, long tibia, short femurs. There's probably a bunch of people like that, but there's also a bunch of people who are have long everything. There's yeah. people who have short tibias and femurs and long torso with long arms. Like everybody's different. The reason I'm saying this is because for somebody who has really long femurs, for example, the leg press probably isn't the best exercise for their quads. So what are we really doing here? It's probably a better exercise for their glutes, to be honest with you, because they're going to have to take a wider stance and they're, they're going to go into more hip flexion, which is going to stretch the glutes more. They're not going to get a lot of uh, knee flexion and stretch on the quads. And stretch, the stretch phase of movement is the most hypertrophic range of the motion. So for somebody, it's the same thing with like somebody who has uh, short femurs and long tibias. They can like just sit in a perfect squat, yeah. right? It's it's like there's there's a million like Olympic lifter memes of uh, Asian Olympic lifters who just squat so fucking perfectly. It's why they're they're so good at it. But from a genetic perspective, their bone structure is literally perfect for that squat, right? And so they sit into it perfectly. Um, there's a lot of people who are not gifted for that, but they're uh, but in being not gifted for that, they're the best deadlifters. So they make great powerlifters. It's it's a, a mechanics thing, right? Totally. And the reason I'm saying this is because, okay, more volume equaled better, but what about all the people who could have gotten just as much hypertrophy if they chose different exercises because those exercises fucking sucked for their mechanics? You don't know because that's a, it's a study on averages and total volume versus an individual. Um, I've literally taken people and I have changed. Dude, in fact, I had somebody, we talked about this recently on a podcast. Somebody asked why they couldn't feel their quads, I think, or was it their hamstrings? I think they said they do like a, an RDL and they feel their quads or something. There was that one question. Somebody asked. It was when we started. They feel the stretch in it? What do you mean they feel it? They were really quad dominant. Yeah. I believe. Unless it was hamstring. But somebody asked about how to build their legs and they couldn't figure it out because they, they try everything. They pre-fatigue. They do all these things. Remember? And I told them to do single leg leg extensions. Yes. But I was talking to them about all of this shit. I was talking about this on the podcast. They literally sent me an email and said they had the most brutal quad session. And they had crazy soreness in their quads like they've never had before because they did that one exercise that I told them was probably going to be better for them. The single leg. The single leg leg extension. And for somebody who wouldn't feel it in a leg press would probably actually do way better on a leg extension because you can isolate it in a unilateral form and you are pinning the machine in a way that is just focusing on your quad. Um, It's why leg extensions are, are pretty damn good for anybody's quad. But squats aren't great for everybody's quad, you know? Um, same thing with RDLs. Some people don't RDL super. Like, RDLs just aren't that great. But you put them in a single leg, you put them on a leg curl, you put them on a glute ham raise, you do something different, it's going to change the game. So um, I, I, this is where I'm, like, technically based on research, uh, using a, a programming method that allows you to progressively overload or progress in general, there's progression methods, right? You Programming in a way that allows you to implement a progression method that in, increases your volume over time, no matter how that volume is increased, it's just that your volume is increasing over time. That is the key to hypertrophy, absolutely, based on research. Based on my experience, I would say form 
it's technically not form because it's more like exercise selection. But I mean, I think the details matter so much more than what we can find in research is what I'm really trying to say. Because even for, but because somebody could still get away with a squat um, and get good quads if we just position them differently. This is where like some people need a slight heel raise. Some people yep. need a high heel raise. Some people need no heel raise at all. Um, depends. It depends. I mean, that depends on mobility too, but it also depends on the length of these different areas. Yeah. Um, hand position. I mean, so many things. Now, you could classify that as form. I would agree. Or you can classify that as exercise selection. Yeah. Um, I think both matter just as much, to be honest with you. Because the problem is, is if you put somebody on a super high volume program and you're just progressing the volume and the load and all that stuff, but you're not isolating the right muscles, then you're going to have an issue seeing actual growth, you'll see some growth because you're doing a lot, but you're also going to see a way greater increase of cortisol stress, joint stress, wear and tear. So my thought process is more like more volume is better for sure. But before we get to the point where we're adding volume to accomplish more volume, because more volume is relative, we have to find the right exercises for the individual and we have to perform them properly because somebody could do 20 sets without knowing how to do those things versus somebody who can do 10 sets, knowing how to master those things. They'll get the same amount of growth. The, the 10 set will probably get more growth because it's easier to recover from. So they're easy, more easily able to uh, stay away from that high stress state. They don't have to deload as often. And then they have the opportunity to increase volume, match the same amount of volume, but get way more out of it, right? So the stress response is the same because they're both doing 20 sets per week. But the person that mastered these fundamentals first, they're going to get so much more out of it, Yeah. right? So, and, and it's, I think it happens somewhat intuitively for some lifters. Like I've lifted long enough that I've, I've kind of intuitively known some of these things because I know what ones work for me and what doesn't. But as I started trying to write like a curriculum for this coaching program, as well as a, a presentation I'm doing at Jake's gym soon, um, that's when I kind of started connecting more of the dots of like, okay, I know how to do this, but how do I teach this? How do I explain this? How do I do this for other people so that they can get it too? You know what I mean? And then they can start seeing crazy results without having to spend more and more time in the gym doing more and more volume. Um, Just doing it correctly. Yeah. And yeah. part of it too is like the personality t typing test has nothing to do with exercise selection. I, I shouldn't say that. It has a little bit to do, but not for the same reason. That stuff has more to do with what motivates this person to train. And if, if for example, if you're not good at an exercise versus me not being good, not literally you, but two different people, yeah. one person not being good motivates them to get better at it, shuts the other person down. Totally. So how do we use exercises they're already familiar with more to like overshine those ones they're not that familiar with, right? And then allow them to progress those properly. Um, how long should their training block be? How much variety should they have in their, their workouts? Like from, do they have four exercises per workout and more sets or do they have eight and less sets? Do they have a three-week block or do they have a six-week block? Like what creates more excitement? What creates more stress? Like, all those things actually you can pin down and figure out through good coaching. Yep. Uh, but research can't really, can't do any of those things in research. Totally. And if all those things impact training, you're going to get more out of every rep. You know what I mean? Like, so. Why would you say it's harder to do that in research? Because you have such a big sample size or? Because you have a big sample size, you have to, you would have to like, let's say you take a group of 100 people and I'm, okay. I'm like, I'm going to test volume, yep. right? In order to do that, I have to also have some kind of assessment and testing structure to figure that shit out about all those people, which would take them an extra week. Yeah. Once they have the test and all that stuff, they can keep using it. Hey, everybody take this quiz. Hey, everybody film these assessment videos. We're going to have our lab students like audit them. Cool. But now you have to create 100 different programs. 
They're not doing that. Yep. You know what I mean? It's too, it costs too much money. It takes too much time. You just can't. Gotcha. Um, so that's where, because if, even if half of those people all need to follow an upper lower split and the other half are full body, let's say for a study, well, the half that are following an upper lower split, we're going to have some people that do back squat, box squat, front squat, safety bar squat, split squat, leg press. <laughs> those are all squats. Yeah. You know, that's one exercise. Now let's go to the bench press. Yeah. You know, it's like, and then the rep range depends. Like some people, and this is where a lot of people always, they, they battle with what's more important, intensity or volume, right? Well, the people who are jacked and intelligent who are saying volume is more important, they're lucky because they have the research behind them. But also, those people get more motivated by higher volume. They probably can handle more volume. They probably don't lift as heavy, so their body can actually handle it as well. Yeah. Um, it, it works better for them. The people who push intensity, it works better for them. Their body responds better. And there's even like some some like literal like neurological and hormonal differences between people where they can actually handle volumes better, whether it's because of stress or it's because of growth hormone, things like that. Um, some that are easy to understand and figure out and some that you just really won't know ever. You're going to find out if somebody has more growth hormone or better insulin response, really. I mean, you could test blood sugar levels, but... Yeah. yeah. Point is, is that there's just so many differences. So like, who's right in that argument? Neither of them. He's right for him. He's right for him. So you screaming that intensity is better doesn't do shit. You know what I mean? Like it, what it comes down to is what's better for that individual. And to, to understand that you got to know what they've tried in the past, what has worked, what hasn't, what they like, what motivates them, how they perceive stress as well learned as how they handle it. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Cause that's a whole nother ball game too, is half of the reason why some people can't recover well from higher stress loads, whether that's in training in the gym or not, is not because they're not capable of it. It's because they don't perceive their ability to handle it. You know what I mean? It's like the whole willpower thing we talked about. Same thing. Like people who perceive themselves as somebody who has willpower, they can express and show more willpower. Somebody who perceives something as stressful is going to be hit harder by that stress. Somebody who looks at it from like a glass half full perspective, yeah. They won't have to recover from that stress nearly as much, if at all, because they don't see it as stressful. They just see it as a thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and you got to, you can't always change that about somebody, but you can find out how they perceive stress yep. through asking weird, random questions Good that they job. wouldn't even, and that's why I like the personality Good stuff. coaching. Yeah. But if you ask them questions about what they do in traffic, they're not going to answer because they think you're going to like change their training a certain way they have no they're like what the fuck is this about it's like just answer the question yeah and then when they answer it tells you how they handle perceived stress definitely you know what i mean so love it yeah but cool all right we have one more here guys uh we will do the last one from lee it says my 16 year old son recently downloaded my fitness pal and Started a food diary. He has seen that me do this, so I definitely feel responsible. What are your thoughts on teenagers and counting calories? I don't want to make it an issue, which will make him feel defiant. I do want to support his fitness goals without things being obsessive. He's also starting resistance training. What would you do or suggest in this kind of situation? I might be ignorant to the word defiant, but I think they probably meant reliant. Maybe. I did read defiant too, but... Showing defiance. What does defiant mean? She was in defiant mood. Uh, resistant. Uncooperative. Uncompliant. And she said... I guess that it would be the reverse of reliant. I don't either. want to make it an issue which will make him defiant. 
Okay, so it could be defiant towards her, yeah. or it could be reliant towards my fitness pal. Either way, is probably totally. not a good thing. So, I get it. But um, my general opinion is not going to help you. So I will give my opinion, and then I will actually help to my best ability. Um, mind you, that my daughter's four, so no, I'm not there yet. But I've worked with plenty of people who have talked to me about this. Yep. Um, my personal opinion is that uh, teenagers shouldn't track their macros or their food and nap. Period. End of story. I don't think there's any reason for it. I think they're growing. I think that they need to have food awareness. I think they have to have um, you know, whole foods. 100%. I, I think like, I mean, obviously this isn't like a dangerous thing, but I think there's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of worse things that, I mean, in general, I don't think that kids have the, the uh, what's the real world experience, I guess, but like just life experience Yeah. to make decisions upon like there's a reason why you can't get a tattoo till you're 18 you know honestly and even when i when i was i got my first tattoo when i was 17 thank god it was my initials written by my grandma it was a good idea but i also got some fucking bad tattoos one that i've gotten covered up because i didn't properly research what it actually fucking meant in latin and it was like a satanic cult (laughs) literally and i was like oh shit that's not good somebody told me (laughs) they were like you know what's really on your arm yeah but uh i thought it meant uh uh by god's grace and it meant basically this cult's name like it was like fucking no shit uh but i was 18 yeah that's what happened so like i don't think and the reason i say that they're like okay dude this is food like chill but they're also way more impressionable so like the 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 um likelihood of that turning into something negative or turning into something that causes body image issues or anything like that is way greater than a mature adult who has a logical side of their brain already who can stop and think Maybe I should do more research about this tattoo first, right? Or could stop and think the logical side of this diet, the logical side of this app, the logical side of having a cheat meal, the logical side of having a free meal, the logical side of knowing I'm in a healthy place even though I don't like what I see in the mirror, right? There, uh, there's We have an emotional and a logical brain, and I think the younger we get um, or uh, – yeah, I would say the younger we get. Otherwise, I'm going to go on a tangent. But the younger we get, the, the more likely it is that we have more – weight on that emotional side and less on that logical side when we need that logical side to control the emotional side you know what i mean the emotional side's way more irrational same reason why i don't do my own diet when i'm doing a photo shoot the more i go into a deficit the more i rely on that emotional brain and the irrational side of thinking versus the logical side um so i don't think it's necessary i don't think it's smart in general um Granted, I've worked with youth athletes. I've only ha- ever had one that actually tracked, and they didn't track until they, they were 18. It wasn't like, you can't do this until you're 18, but I took them on when they were, right when they turned 18, and after about a year or so, almost a year, because I don't think he was 19 yet, he started tracking his, his diet, and he was trying to gain weight. And at that point, we used it as a way to make sure he was eating enough food, because he just wasn't. His mom was like really into fitness and health, so he already ate pretty damn healthy for a kid. And it was very loose tracking, like hit your protein, get enough calories, somewhere in this range, you know? And I definitely think that's a better way to go about it. It's like, make sure you get enough protein, make sure you're eating enough food. Um, But anytime we start stepping into the diet world, I just don't think it's that good. I would much rather see somebody just focus on food quality, and that'll probably put them in the energy balance they need and teach them the skills of eating proper, Yeah, you know? Um, But uh, strength training, I think is great. I think that is something you should be leaning on a lot. It's, I'm very, very focused on my daughter being in the gym with us to try to be around that environment because I just want it to rub off on her. I wish it would have been rubbed off on me. Um, I think it's super positive. Yep. You know, like 
I mean, I post on my story, like, literally, she just walks over, starts doing the rower. Yep. She was doing intervals with us. Yep. We, like, pulled this gear down for her, and she's, like, sitting there. It's hilarious. Um, she started doing, like, these, like, cross things, like, dancing with it. So she's not really training. It's exposure. It's exposure. Yep. Exactly. Um, same thing with, like, she likes broccoli now. Why? Because I flex every time we eat broccoli, and I say that broccoli makes strong. Yep. So she thinks of that one character from the movie who's really strong, that girl in that Encanto movie. And I said she probably eats a lot of broccoli. And now it's like, oh, broccoli means healthy, athletic. You know what I mean? Like doing those things is important. But when they're a teenager, they they can go down the rabbit hole, obviously. So I think it depends on the situation. Um, I've had somebody in the past who uh, we stopped tracking intentionally to help their daughter stop tracking. Mm. Um, cause sometimes you got to step up as a parent and be like, you know what? I got to cut this out to help them cut this out. Um, but I don't know. I mean, that's my thoughts in general. I don't know. It's hard to say how I would approach it. It depends yeah. on the person. depends on the situation too. Like the kid that I helped with, he crushed it. I mean, he did great. It didn't cause any issues. Um, he was going to Wazoo college, party college, and he wanted more girls attention. He wanted to be jacked. It's like, you're not eating nearly enough food. You got to eat more food. Yeah. Got jacked, had a blast of college. Like, I mean, it's that was his goal. So yeah. it's like it worked out perfect. It didn't cause any issues at all. So I think it depends on the situation. Um, if you're going to keep it around, stick with ranges. Try to influence them to just focus on healthy choices. And that being the reason they're feeling better, not because they're hitting certain macros or tracking. It's just like, hey, you're choosing good options, and that's what's important. And enough good options. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's my thoughts. I love general. it. So it's good. Um Guys, if you are enjoying this podcast, do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating and review. We would appreciate it so much. That's how this podcast grows. We have crossed the 3 million download mark, uh, which we are very proud of, very happy with. And it's because of people like you who are listening to this podcast, liking it, listening to it, rating it, reviewing it, and sharing it with other people. So please keep doing so. And if you haven't yet, do so now. If anything I said resonated with you and you want individualized help, um, like I said, you can uh, hit me up personally, Cody at Taylor Coaching Method, if you are uh, interested in the uh, higher level approach, we don't know what to call it yet, um, that is still, uh, you would be one of the first because we haven't actually physically launched yet. This is the first time I actually mentioned that I'm opening it up soon, but it will be opening up in the next couple of weeks. So if you want an early spot, I'm literally only taking five people. So this is a very small, tight-knit group that I'm going to work with, and it's not group coaching. It's individualized. Um, and for anybody else who just needs guidance, needs a diet, needs training program, all that kind of stuff, you just want to lose weight, uh, you don't need the whole shebang, but you want real results as fast as possible, taylorcoachingmethod.com slash online dash coaching. That is what we do. As always, guys, we appreciate you for listening and we will catch you next time.